All right. Welcome, listeners, to episode 78 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here, as always, with my great friend, Sam Etherbell. Hey, Sam. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm great. We're kind of back from a, a light August. Like your psychiatrists, we were away for some, <laughs> some of August. That's right. But we're back in full swing, gearing up for the fall, and our first episode back is a great one. What do we have lined up today, Sam? Well, we had returning guest Samuel Moyne on to talk about his new book, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. That's right. Sam Moyne, Sam number two for the purposes of this podcast. This is his second time on the pod. And listeners will recall he is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. And this was a really, it's a little different than some of our conversations because it's about liberalism as such. Yeah. But some of the figures we talk about, someone like Gertrude Himmelfarb, you know, definitely was associated with conservatism, with neoconservatism. And we don't want to give too much away, but this definitely is is a conversation about the kind of chastening and narrowing of liberalism during the Cold War and kind of what it wrought, giving up on ambition and utopia and, and the Enlightenment and progress and perfectionism. We talk about all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could say that the question for Sam's book and for the purpose of our conversation is how accommodating did liberalism make itself to the conservative turn in American politics? It is mostly what we talk about on this podcast. So is, is it really liberalism's fault that the conservative movement <laughs> took over America? <laughs> Yes, we go back to the mid-20th century. A lot of these intellectuals we've talked about before on the podcast, and it's kind of, you know, revisiting that period, but from a slightly different angle, which made for a great conversation. Sam's great, and his book is excellent. We'll put a, a link to it in the show notes. But anything else before we get to some housekeeping items, Sam? No, let's go. All right. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent. One thing they do for us is if you subscribe to Know Your Enemy at our Patreon at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy. For $10 a month, you get all of our bonus episodes and a free digital subscription to Descent. And I see uh, they have a new issue just coming out uh, this week. I was just reading it. Up from neoliberalism. There's actually a review of Moyne's book. Oh, great. Well, do check that out. And of course, if you subscribe at our Patreon for $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, of which we've had some good ones lately and some good ones lined up. Yeah. For those looking for more of the uh, contemporaneous punditry about the campaign, you'll get more of that if you sign up for $5 a month on Patreon. <laughs> we already did one responding to the first GOP presidential debate. So check out patreon.com slash know your enemy if you haven't yet. As always, we want to thank Jesse Brenneman, our intrepid producer, who always does such a good job with our episodes, including this one, which is very densely packed with insight. I would say Sam Moyne has that kind of very good professor's quality of speaking in little paragraphs, which I find so impressive and made this conversation not necessarily a tough edit, but one that you have to kind of pay really close attention to while you're editing. And uh, as always, we want to thank Will Epstein, who does the music for the podcast. All right. Is that it? Should we get to it? Let's do it. Here's our conversation with Sam Moyne about Cold War liberalism. Enjoy. Right, Sam Moyne, welcome back to Know Your Enemy. It's great to be with you again. We're here for a very 
auspicious occasion just this week your new book liberalism against itself cold war intellectuals in the making of our times was published by yale university press so you're on a press junket for this book on cold war liberalism i think it begins and ends right now (laughs) i'll say right now that i really enjoyed this book it was really so fun to read and it really did feel like i was in a seminar with you, walking me through the paces of these really wonderful thinkers. And it made me uh, jealous of your students, I'll say. Well, that means a lot. Thank you. This book did begin as a series of lectures, right? Which I think is partly why, I mean, it's an extremely readable book for as kind of high-level intellectual debates as you take up. And I think it bears the marks of, of being lectures first in the best possible way. Yeah, I didn't change them much from the originally drafted forms as the Carlisle Lectures in the History of Political Thought, which is an annual series at the University of Oxford. And I was a kind of visiting fellow at All Souls College, where one of the heroes or anti-heroes of the book, Isaiah Berlin, had been a fellow for years. So it was a, a treat to be in the mothership, but also introduce them to some American perspectives and some American cold warriors to fill out a kind of transatlantic story about Cold War liberalism. Well, before we dive into some of the particular chapters and grill you about all the problems we had with this book, which aren't that many, but uh, (laughs) there are some substantial ones. Could you just tell listeners kind of what your main argument is about Cold War liberalism? I mean, in a nutshell, the argument is that in the middle of the 20th century, liberalism was changed in theory. And that, I think, eventually had ramifications for practice. Cold War liberalism ended up birthing or coming very close to neoliberalism and neoconservatism, including just in the careers of some of the people I chart. And the thinkers you take up, you have chapters on Judith Sklar, Isaiah Berlin, Karl Popper, Gertrude Himmelfarb, Hannah Arendt, Lionel Trilling. And along the way, you weave in a lot of other fascinating figures, Herbert Butterfield, Lord Acton, so on and so forth. Can I read to you what I took to be the thesis of your book? And you can tell me if it's right or wrong. So this is what I wrote down. How Cold War liberals, enraptured by a theory of totalitarianism that linked both fascism and communism to political romanticism, engaged in an elaborate renovation of their own tradition, quarantining the Enlightenment, decanonizing their own emancipatory agenda, and rendering themselves perilously vulnerable, if not actively hospitable, to the market turn of neoliberalism, a perversion which tragically helped dismantle liberalism's own best practical accomplishments, that is, the welfare states of Western Europe, the UK, and the United States. Brilliant. (laughs) It, It does capture, you know, in a way I generally avoid, but we can nerd out here, the kind of methodological approach of the book, which is to look especially carefully at who gets blame and praise among liberals, which I think radically shifts And as you say, I mean, Romanticism had been at the font of liberalism. The Enlightenment arguably had to, and even figures like G.W.F. Hegel and Karl Marx, at least as kind of people spurring liberal renovation. And all of those sources were excised and expunged in favor of new ones. I think one reason I liked the book as much as I did is because... I thought it was going to be more of a broadside against liberalism in the sense of the failures of Cold War liberalism, the kind of giving up on a certain sort of ambition, the narrowing and limiting 
aspects of it, the more pessimistic, fatalistic aspects of Cold War liberalism. I thought you might root them in liberalism itself in a very strong way. And instead, what I found was you're pretty favorable toward those earlier strands of liberalism that, as you said, had a more productive engagement with people like Marx and Hegel and believed in progress and kind of perfectionism. Could you just describe kind of what you mean by progress and perfectionism that was present in these earlier liberalisms that then was given up on? Sure. I, you know, I appreciate your framing because this book is in some sense an intervention into the polemical war over liberalism's, you know, fate past and present that Patrick Deneen by way of Donald Trump set off in 2016. And, <laughs> you know, there's a kind of easy rejectionism, not just on the right, but sometimes on the left. The best people on the left, including in the pages of Jacobin and rival articles, kind of have an open debate about the value of liberalism. We all know Karl Marx himself thought liberalism was emancipatory within strict limits that had to be overcome. And so to me, one has to be discriminating about it and not just junk modernity, as Patrick Deneen proposed and some other post-liberals. And it's in that regard that I look back not to rehabilitate liberalism before the Cold War, which was ruined by its own proximity to laissez-faire economics and practice, you know, long before the Democratic Party became neoliberalism, and above all, by its imperialism. And yet, there are some promising moves that the earliest liberals made, and that I do try to suggest ought to be reclaimed. And one, as you mentioned, is perfectionism. In, in recent liberal theory, and I think practice, liberals have tended to be, let's call it, tolerationists. They say life is about contending views and liberals just allow everyone to get along without bloodshed. And when they say that, they often look back to the early modern period in religious war as the alleged origin of liberalism, when in fact it was kind of in the 19th century in response to the French Revolution amongst people like Alexis de Tocqueville or John Stuart Mill, who were not tolerationists. They, of course, were interested in letting people live and not putting them to the stake. But they said there's a highest life for humanity, and it consists in being interesting and novel and creating institutions that promote public and private freedom understood as creative experimentation. And that's something that gives liberals something to believe in, which I think the Democrats have sorely lacked. And it saves liberals from just making a kind of boringly economistic move to their current situation, although that's important. And then, as you also said, liberals were progressivist. They promised, as the Soviets were to do so frighteningly, a radiant future, since a society of free and equal citizens doesn't just magically transpire, let alone already exist, but has to be nurtured into being through institutional work over generations and sometimes through hard pushes. So liberals were in favor of emancipation, I argue, in these two respects. And emancipation is about an end and a process. And we need to get back to those features of any future liberalism. I think one thing that's really illuminating about the book is that you're sort of suggesting that the liberalism that people complain about, especially on the left, but on the right too, when they just sort of say, ah, the, the liberals, the libs, <laughs> our kind of like instinctive sense of what liberalism consists of, this kind of beleaguered 
timid, not particularly aspirational, sort of quarantining emancipatory projects from flourishing, that liberalism really is the inheritance of Cold War liberalism and not the only liberalism that we could have or that we have had. That's exactly right. So, I mean, I tend to see critics of liberalism, especially on the right, but not only like Deneen, as generalizing from a Cold War liberalism that devolved in, into neoliberalism. And in a sense, he's right to target those phenomena, but not to scapegoat the entirety of liberalism in which there may be some resources yet, some fire to use to relight a torch. I'm not claiming to create a bright future myself, but I, I just would like to see politicians and philosophers do a bit more ambitious setting of goals than we've seen. And I just don't want to scapegoat liberalism when it's it seems like Cold War liberalism that's to blame for our dire straits. One thing I wanted to ask you at the outset, and I think it follows from what we were just talking about, what these thinkers thought was possible for human beings, you know, in place of optimism, more pessimism or fatalism, instead of human possibility and, and self-creation, strict limits, the kind of permanent fixtures that limit human possibility. But, you know, in between most of the writings of these Cold War liberals and the earlier liberalism we were describing, some things happen in human history, right? Two world wars, the Holocaust, the dropping of the atom bomb, some of what was happening in the Soviet Union that we now know, those crimes, especially of Stalin. You know, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this period of history, intellectually speaking, because everyone was kind of reacting to these world historic events, and especially the pessimism and fatalism of some of these thinkers, you can't separate it from these events we all know about. And I'm just sort of interested how you thought about that. In other words, how would you have responded to two world wars and the Holocaust? Yeah, weren't they right to be a little bit cowed about utopian projects and the romantic possibilities of the masses? Yeah, no, I mean, George Orwell famously says, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? It's totally fair to correct course. I just think that we'd also want to assess not just the advantages, but the risks of the course correction, which I actually think we can assess much better from our current perspective. You know, I'm happy to dispense some much needed empathy towards some of these people. At the same time, it's really important to note that someone like Judith Glar didn't inherit Cold War liberalism. She embraced it belatedly after protesting against it, even though she had been a, a Jewish migrant, knew about the Holocaust and so forth. And many others made choices that, prompted by experience, were extremely debatable at the time and in their effects, so consequential that we, I think we ought to revisit them. Right. Well, I mean, one thing we can learn from Freud is that like trauma is real, but trauma isn't the same thing as knowledge. <laughs> that trauma can produce perversions of knowledge or sort of appropriate responses to trauma. I mean, that's the working through that, that Freud cautions, you know, uh, people are not expert on the crimes that are done to them. You know, we could generalize Trilling's case in which I actually argue that the very psychoanalysis he mobilizes turns out to be even more useful for understanding his own case, <laughs> which seems to yes, be one yes, yes. not of working through, but of like living in trauma and overlearning from it. 
I don't want to jump the gun. We'll get to that later. I love that chapter. I thought it was great. I loved your reading of The Middle of the Journey, which is a book that is kind of in the canon of Know Your Enemy, too, especially since our episodes on, on Whitaker Chambers. I am one of the, the world's main defenders of that novel. For years, I didn't read it because it always seemed to get a bad reputation, but I kind of love it. I unexpectedly fell in love with Trilling himself, but it was on condition of reading him against the grain and especially that novel, which I think that's really important uh, because maybe he ends up being the best critic of Cold War liberalism rather than a kind of boring icon of it. Well, speaking of that, maybe we could discuss Judith Schlar a bit because she's kind of your muse in a way for this whole project and interestingly kind of starts out as one of the most lucid critics of Cold War liberalism in her book After Utopia, but then later on kind of concedes to kind of embrace this sort of much more minimalist concept of liberalism, sort of liberalism of fear of her later work. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about her and then what you found so useful about her early work for guiding us through these other Cold War liberal thinkers? So she's born in the same town as Isaiah Berlin, a generation later and you know fled from there and ended up in Canada and then later as a Harvard graduate student she never left the university and she is probably best known to this date for a piece she wrote in in 1989 at the end of the Cold War called The Liberalism of Fear which is really a, a just a brilliant distillation of the basic posture that as she famously said puts cruelty first prioritizes damage control and renounces ambition in part because of the devastation that she says, you know, ideological enthusiasm can bring. And yet her dissertation is a protest against all of that. It's, it's more a diagnosis of the kind of end of ideology as she sees it, which for her is also the end of the Enlightenment. How liberalism having been prompted by the Enlightenment, understood as a claim about emancipation of human agency and power, was progressively abandoned. And she thought that abandonment was reaching a climax in her own youth. And amazingly, she's one of the first and very remorseless critics of neoliberalism, but it's not because it's about the power of capital or about the production of inequality. Rather, her allegation is that when we look at neoliberal authors, they epitomize the abandonment of the Enlightenment on the grounds that it's been claimed by the Soviets. So she is kind of providing a useful rebuke to, I think, those who become fellow Cold War liberals, including, I, I show, I hope, her own teacher, Berlin, who himself is very wary of the Enlightenment. And so that allows me to make this first step of showing that liberalism in the Cold War is completing its abandonment of some of its earliest inspirational sources, in this case, the very commitment to emancipation that the Enlightenment, she claims, had produced. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the fascinating moves in the book that you articulate really well, which is that Cold War liberals took the Soviet propaganda at its word that they were the real inheritors of the Enlightenment, of the French Revolution, and of reason and science and history, and just sort of said, okay, that's your thing now, and we're going to do something else much more minimalist, timid, and separate from a kind of emancipatory project. Yeah, I think that was the central mistake. And again, it's not a natural or necessary response to experience. Of 
course, it's true that there's no one authentic claim on the past, and the Soviets definitely fairly made claims on the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, and even more fairly on Marx. Liberals, in response, abandoned their own claims. The fact that they'd spent a lot of time trying to institutionalize emancipation themselves, learning from Karl Marx and doing so, and really expunged all these sources that had made liberalism something very different than it became. When did that view of the Soviet Union really settle in and kind of register intellectual effects in the works of some of these thinkers? It's just amazing how long it took. Liberals helped invent socialism. And as the so-called new liberals arise in the later 19th century, they're downloading Karl Marx as a central figure. Even if they don't mention him, they're fully on board with Marx's critique of formal emancipation as opposed to real emancipation and just try to claim it for liberals. It's like the opposite of what happened in the Cold War. And But then if you look after Red October... I mean, you you all are interested in Christopher Lash. Well, what's his first book about? It's about how much interest there was in the Soviet experiment. And actually, I mean, I think it's fair to say that it's Roman Catholics on the continent who really, although they're themselves divided in the interwar period, declare the Cold War before secular liberals join in. Even very early, early 20th century Catholic social encyclicals portray the Catholic project as, you know, communism on one hand is really bad. Even if capitalism and the kind of immiseration of workers is bad on the other hand, the fear of communism and naming it as an enemy, I think you're right to kind of see that a lot in some of these interwar Catholic figures. Even the concept of totalitarianism, right, has a Catholic genealogy. Absolutely. I mean, James Chappell has has shown that, I think, quite brilliantly. I mean, there are some on the left who adopt it early, and Arendt is in communication with them. But I think we now understand very clearly that the, the concept is minted by very illiberal Catholics who love places like Austria between 1934 and 1938 and contrast it with pagan Nazism not because they're liberals, but because they have their own utopia rooted in these social encyclicals that's very illiberal. You have a chapter in here on Karl Popper, which I thought was really interesting. And his utility for this project, this sort of renovation of liberalism, is to decanonize and sort of really demonize historicism. Could you tell us what you mean and what Popper meant by historicism and what kinds of modes of thinking and thinkers are being decanonized by his contribution. So he is significant in the book for deaccessioning Hegel and Marx as resources for liberals, but it's because he associates them with his very cramped understanding of what historicism is, which he thinks of as a commitment to law-like inevitable processes in history. And I think he's right to reject the existence of such laws, in part, as he argued and as Berlin argued in a famous pamphlet called Historical Inevitability, because they evacuate any responsibility for choice as if things are already determined. However, they tar a much broader commitment with the brush of their rejection. And that broader commitment is a commitment to expectation and futurism to the notion that 
freedom and equality on a collective basis are historically emergent and they don't come about of necessity following a kind of script. And actually that's the view Hegel held, this one that leaves some play in the system, just requiring us to think about our place in the history of emancipation in the 19th century and after liberals had been Hegelians. Hegel himself might not have been a liberal, but liberals, especially as time passed, really believed they were the stewards of the future that was not yet born and that they had to forge their message around a sense that they would produce the radiant future. And yet when the Soviets claimed to do so, liberals gave up claims on history. Popper helped them do so. And I think it's been rather disastrous, especially after 1989, when liberals have really not given people much to believe in, as if either history is over, as the right-wing Hegelian Francis Fukuyama claimed, or there's some kind of plangent sense that actually justice is at the end of the long arc of the moral universe, and we just wait for it if we vote for Democrats <laughs> without engaging in massive structural change. So I think we need to go back basically to kind of left Hegelianism as the crucible for any plausible liberalism, and Popper barred the door. I, I know that we have some listeners who are stomping their feet and chanting when you say left Hegelianism. <laughs> I'm one of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Marx was also a left Hegelian. We could try to redeem Marx or the early Marx or whatever from the allegations that Popper made, which I think were crude. And I think Marx has something to offer, even if he turns out to have a kind of more necessitarian philosophy of history. Nonetheless, I think we shouldn't do what Popper did, which was to sweep the entirety of this futuristic approach to politics away simply because of some mistakes he diagnosed. I want to kind of zero in on the connection that Popper makes between a kind of teleological historicism, right? History unfolds according to these laws, as you mentioned, and the kind of totalitarianism he's opposing. The connection is that if you know the laws of history, and you're kind of part of the chosen people who know this, then that can lead to totalitarianism because you're going to what? Push history along? Speed up the process, serve as the agents of inevitable. Yeah. It's very closely related to the willingness to break eggs to make omelets. And the, the kind of epistemic warrant for doing so would be this background certainty that you know where history's going. And if you speed up the process or serve as the midwife of progress through revolution, Far from making a moral choice, you will have just kind of sided with history in its path forward. And of course, the middle of the 20th century, no one finds it easy to sustain a belief in progress. I cite the Marxist T.W. Adorno, who says there's no history from savagery to humanitarianism, but there is one from the slingshot to the megaton bomb, as if there are teleologies, but they're only negative to hell. And that's, again, a point about experience. But we have the obligation, you know, having had different experiences to refuse to overlearn from the dire straits that these people experience and understand that we need some sense of where we stand in an emancipatory process to imagine what plausible next steps we can take as morally free. I, I mean, one thing 
that is another one of the kind of signal ironies of the story that you're telling is that at the very moment that these Cold War liberals are abandoning the sort of egalitarian and emancipatory traditions within their own thinking, practically speaking, liberals are building the most emancipatory and egalitarian liberal states, you know, kind of Hegelian states <laughs> that have ever been achieved in the form of the welfare states. And I could think about that for so long. <laughs> I could just, I just like, it fascinates me. And then as you point out, Rawls comes along in 1971, right? Is that when Theory of Justice comes out? As a sort of owl of Minerva who does, you know, sort of theorize the welfare state, but only once, practically speaking, its dismantling has begun. That's, you know, central to my narrative. And it requires us to, you know, abandon or rethink one thing that Hegel said, which is that philosophy is its own age captured in thought. Because right. more glaring to me is the mismatch between liberal theory and liberal practice. Cold War liberal theorists are leaving no account of the emancipatory nature of the very states their politicians are constructing, in part because they're arguing against the Soviets. They come very near, in theory, to the libertarianism that neoliberals aren't succeeding in hawking to even you know right-wing parties, let alone left ones. But then when John Rawls corrects for these original emphases, it's too late. The neoliberals are on the verge of conquest of at least the Anglo-American sphere on which I'm concentrating in this book. And so his thought is, again, out of sync. It's as if he memorializes an achievement that is being eroded ever since. And it's just a sad fact that his famous difference principle, which has an egalitarian flavor, has never been more institutionalized than the day before a theory of justice was published than any day since, uh, <laughs> since we've seen more and more inequality. So this requires us to think about intellectual history differently. And, and because it turns out that, you know, thinkers can anticipate future practical developments, and they can memorialize ones that are being blown away. It's fascinating that Rawls began as an Augustinian, right? His undergraduate thesis was uh, on original sin, and he rejects that to become the philosopher we know and who you described well just there. I want to just underscore the importance of the concept of totalitarianism, because Karl Popper, who we were just talking about, the open society is contrasted with totalitarianism. And the kind of very narrow and fatalistic forms of Cold War liberalism we've been describing, it's against that backdrop, right? If you become too ambitious, if you, if you want too much, if you have too grand or utopian a scheme, implementing it will lead to widespread misery and destruction and the camps and the gulag and all that. And so the freedom that often was at the center of some of these Cold War thinkers, at least one form of freedom, a more libertarian freedom, it's against that backdrop of the, the scourge of totalitarianism. This fascinated me as someone who studied political theory in graduate school, and especially was so interested in Rousseau, which is the role Rousseau plays in a lot of these stories of the rise of totalitarianism. You talk about J.L. Talman's book on Rousseau, The Rise of Totalitarian Democracy, published in this era. And it was interesting to me the way 
these thinkers, so often there was a narrative of how we got here, tracing back problems to someone like Rousseau. Where does that impulse come from? Or kind of what did you make of the uses of the history of political thought as you were working on this book? Well, one reason is it it serves a certain nationalism, even amongst people who are supposedly indicting nationalism. So in World War One, German thought as such, and most notably Hegel, becomes very unpopular in Anglo-American circles. And many of the leading philosophers at Cambridge, Harvard, Oxford, write books just scapegoating Germany as such. And the declared reason for this kind of nationalist scapegoating is that Germans are nationalist and their thinkers are nationalist. But the real energy of the book is around this category of romanticism, which did have something to do with the rise of nationalism in in the 19th century. And Rousseau kind of figures in a couple of respects, given that emphasis. One is that it had been popular for decades by that point to blame Rousseau for the French Revolution, which is then claimed by the Soviets, and therefore Rousseau is seen to be the first communist. But because he was also seen as, you know, breaking with the Enlightenment allegedly and kind of paving the way for Romanticism, he could also be seen as the first nationalist. Famously, in 1945, Bertrand Russell wrote, Hitler is the outcome of Rousseau. And so (laughs) Rousseau becomes this kind of like whipping boy for all forms of totalitarianism, even though Rousseau and the French Revolution had been inspirational throughout the 19th century to liberals themselves, although they offered criticisms of him in in the same breath. So this is something I think that allows us to think about the history of philosophy and the popular discourse around past philosophers as very revealing of how traditions are getting reshuffled. And, you know, in the process, they change their priorities philosophically and and in practice. I love your chapter on, on Hannah Arendt. And I think to perhaps totally unjustifiably simplify your argument, what Arendt allows you to point to is two exceptions that prove the rule in a way, in different ways. Decolonization as an exception in the sense that there is no kind of reckoning with what you could otherwise see as the sort of greatest flourishing of, an, of another emancipatory liberal tradition, a nationalist tradition, taking place in the third world while they're writing these things. And the other exception that proves the rule in a different way is Zionism, which is <laughs> a form of nationalism, of even sort of justified violence in the building of a state. You could even say a decolonization for Jews, as I think Berlin said that. Berlin said it's an interesting simile to call Zionism a decolonization movement. Right. But Zionism is an exception in in the sense that they all permit, they allow Zionism to be sort of the one case in which the kind of emancipatory tradition, the sort of future-facing progressive vision of liberalism to flourish. And so those two exceptions, one a blindness and one a myopia in a way, like one too much focus and one no focus at all, you use Arendt to sort of draw out. She's useful, though she was not a liberal, let alone a Cold War liberal, because I think she was a fellow traveler of the Cold War liberals in a lot of her commitments, far beyond the fact that she was the most famous propagator of totalitarianism theory. So she never writes about the Enlightenment. She hates Rousseau and Hegel. She castigates the French Revolution as a kind of recipe for 
terrorism because it engages the social question. And although a lot of people have criticized her for various forms of racism, racialism, I try to show that the target of her thought on revolution is really decolonizing revolution. And she's very open about that, especially when she engages Frantz Fanon and Jean-Paul Sartre in a little pamphlet she wrote called On Violence. But arguably, she's a very open critic of decolonization, and that fits with the Cold War liberals who, at least in the early years, tended to treat liberty as something that had to seek refuge in the transatlantic West and on which they kind of gave up. And this, again, is is interesting relative to the liberals of the past. John Stuart Mill did not give up on liberalism in the world. It's just that he thought it would require imperialism to advance. After imperialism, Cold War liberals, you know, were very happy to indict the Soviet Union as an empire while letting the United States off the hook. But I think their main mistake was to kind of disregard the prospects of global emancipation, which was really the last gasp of Hegelianism and at times Marxism. And then the Cold War liberals all celebrated emancipation for Jews in Israel, which was nationalistic and violent. And Berlin was very honest that it was a throwback to 19th century liberalism. But if it was viable there in the Middle East, why wasn't it viable for anyone else making the same bid for the Hegelian state, freedom and equality in the state that the Cold War liberals treated as the wellspring of totalitarianism? I mean, I could talk about this part of the book forever because I I mean, Zionism is so often this kind of revealing totem, like how people approach the question of Israel ends up being so revealing for people's blind spots. Or for these thinkers, there's this kind of ghostly image of what liberalism could be, sort of this sort of suppressed or repressed remaining kind of enthusiasm for the kind of liberalism that you feel they mostly otherwise quarantined in their appreciation for Israel. I think that's right. And in this case, I think you could credit them for, in a sense, keeping the very liberalism they were otherwise concerned to reject alive in their hearts. And it's just their hearts were not with the Jewish religion, but with the Jewish people in the Middle East who were doing the kinds of things that they denied to the peoples of the world, even to their own fellow Atlantic citizens who were building the Hegelian state in ways that the Cold War liberals thought they could leave without defense and assume would take the kind of, you know, liberal nonviolent form that would make it acceptable. It's interesting. I'm not sure if we've actually noted yet that in this book, Sam Moyne, all the thinkers you take up are, are Jewish thinkers. That does not mean, however, that there's an absence of Christian theology in this book, and especially a kind of repurposed Augustinianism that was a, a key feature of Cold War liberalism. And of course, the, the thinker I'm, I'm thinking of here that is the exemplar of this in your book is Gertrude Himmelfarb, a kind of neoconservative thinker. She was married to Irving Kristol and the mother of Bill Kristol. And she died pretty recently, I think 2019, just a, a few years ago. And this is the part of the, the conversation, maybe, now that we've softened you up with a lot of agreement and you know talking about how much we love the book, where Sam and I did feel that despite our warm feelings towards this book, 
uh, it was an attack on this podcast in some ways. Because <laughs> uh, you go after a kind of Augustinian Christianity and one version of Freudianism. Well, it's crass instrumentalizations of both, not your... Okay, don't try to defend yourself yet, Sam. <laughs> All right. You must hear the allegations before you're allowed to respond. Well, you know, it's less allegations than when we noticed the themes you were circling around. We thought, we have to talk about this book. It's kind of about at least the bizarro version of kind of approaches and ideas we, we hold dear in this podcast. But I thought, you know, to get to that conversation, we should talk about Gertrude Himmelfarb some. So maybe the question would be, how did someone like Gertrude Himmelfarb, a Jewish intellectual with a, a focus on kind of Victorian era British history, how did she come to hold this Cold War neo-Augustinian position? And, and maybe what, what was that position exactly? What did Augustine and Original Sin and some of these Christian concepts do for her? Yeah, why did all these Jews want us to be Christians? Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's pretty well known that there was a kind of Christian essence to Cold War liberalism. You know, the default central casting figure that would often be talked about is Reinhold Niebuhr. And I thought that choosing Himmelfarb would just be a kind of offbeat way of getting at some of the same themes while also kind of showing how just as Berlin put Cold War liberalism a hair's breadth from neoliberalism, she puts Cold War liberalism a hair's breadth from the very neoconservatism that she's about to play a major role in inventing. Now, to say that the Cold War was Christianized is not to say that prior liberalism was clearly secular, because I think that a figure like Hegel and many you know, 19th century liberals were Pelagian. They saw reformist Christianity of a kind that made original sin peripheral or something that could be overcome, either individually or collectively. They became secular, and they helped liberalism be secular, but it it was very close to the kind of end stage of Christianity. They sometimes saw liberalism as kind of succeeding. And then you get the middle of the 20th century when Himmelfarb writes her dissertation on Lord Acton, who had been a kind of dissident Augustinian Catholic liberal in the later 19th century, condemning secular liberals of the Victorian era for not taking original sin seriously. And it just is amazing that this basically secular Jew in the 1940s, Himmelfarb, could spend her time telling people that in the Cold War, people needed not only to get someone else's religion, but needed to adopt not the Pelagian, but this depressing version that says that, you know, we can't transcend depravity. And for listeners, Pelagianism, Pelagianism, it was an early heresy in the Christian church that basically holds that original sin does not taint human nature in a certain kind of way. It attributes more freedom and agency to human beings to kind of achieve human perfection, but maybe also socially and politically. It's basically Augustine's opponent. Right. It's basically the opposite of Augustinian original sin, which is we're very much are tainted by original sin for him. And it kind of puts maybe limits on what is possible in this world in terms of the politics and society we can build. So it's kind of like a, a more open-ended view of human nature versus a much more closed and pessimistic one. That's right. Or, or to the extent that redemption is possible, it's all up to God and, you know, his unfathomable grace. Whereas Pelagianism says precisely history is a form of opportunity in the individual life or the collective life of the species to 
prove ourselves eligible for redemption through our own remaking. And, you know, if we're not prepared to acknowledge that Pelagianism is really at the heart of the modern belief in emancipation, which, it, you know, may secularize that Christian tradition or heresy, then I think we're not being honest about how we're still in the backwash of Christianity. And, and Himmelfarb is significant because she did understand that, but she said, for reasons that have to do with Stalin's claim on progress, we have to put the brakes on liberal optimism. And the way to do that, regardless of one's belief in any of this Christian mumbo jumbo, is to teach people that they're depraved. And of course, others did so by talking about the psychoanalytic theory of aggression, which was just a secular version, if you like, of original sin. Which is also to say that in addition to someone like Himmelfarb putting Cold War liberalism very close to neoconservatism and you know, some of these other thinkers bringing it very close to neoliberalism, the other neo in this mix is neo-orthodox theology, of which someone like Reinhold Niebuhr was maybe the great exemplar. You mentioned Deneen, Patrick Deneen, a couple of times, his great teacher, Wilson Carey McWilliams, I think it was in the 50s or maybe early to mid-60s, wrote a great essay, I think published in the American Political Science Review, about Reinhold Niebuhr titled, A New Orthodoxy for Old Liberalism. Hmm. <laughs> no, that's perfect. That's what Himmelfarb was offering. And, you know, I try to narrate how she is not yet a neoconservative because Hayek was also very interested in Acton, almost called the Montpellier Society the Acton Tocqueville Society. But there were two Catholics and you couldn't have that. <laughs> exactly. You couldn't have one, let alone two. But she resisted that neoliberalism, even talking about appropriating the same figure, Lord Acton, as Hayek was doing. But, you know, change liberalism into so pessimistic a creed that she eventually became a neoliberal with neoconservative family values, accents herself in short order. Well, and, and this is why, you know, Matt was jokingly talking about the twin modes of thought that we keep getting back to on the podcast, and that there's a way in which Matt and I are able to sort of talk in different idioms about the same thing through his appreciation for Augustinian Christianity and mine for a certain kind of Freudianism. And, and your, your book just points out exactly, you know, the Freudian notion of aggression and death drive is just a secularized version of the kind of original sin that Himmelfarb is introducing into liberalism. You write, the consciousness of original sin in neo-Orthodox Christianity and the awareness of psychic discord in Sigmund Freud were proposed as talismans to ward off an alluring but abusive emancipation. And as Matt said, when we got to those chapters in the book, we realized, oh man, this is really kind of a challenge to what we try to do in the podcast, which is different, <laughs> I think, than what Himmelfarb was doing with Augustine and what Trilling was doing with Freud, because, you know, what we would like to do is think about how it can be that broken people, fallen people, people who are internally discordant and don't know their own desires, can nonetheless be engaged in emancipatory projects, not therefore incapable. That's kind of what we want to close out the conversation talking about, because I think it's really interesting, a, a different kind of canonizing that we do on this podcast of those two figures, Freud and Augustine. But before we do, let's talk about Trilling a bit, because just as you use Himmelfarb to shepherd neo-Orthodox Christianity into your story, you use Lionel Trilling, the great literary critic, to bring Freud in, because he was sort of central to canonizing Freud as part of this Cold War neoliberal canon. He was. He's really important to my 
story just because he was such a sage for those who, when I was young in the 1990s, were appropriating all the Cold War liberals, crediting them with the final and right answers about politics, you know, especially someone like Leon Wieseltier at the New Republic magazine, who famously gathered some of Trilling's essays together under the title, The Moral Obligation to be Intelligent. (laughs) No moral (laughs) obligation not to uh, sexually harass your employees, but yes. Or, I mean, the kind of policies coming out of TNR in the 90s, both on the economic front and on the foreign policy front, I think we look back and we could see a lot of sin and aggression in all of it. And yet, Trilling was, you know, if I can use another Freud's favorite words, was a kind of totem when I was young. And I just had not reckoned with him. And I was delighted by what I found, just because, of course, it's true he integrates psychoanalysis into liberalism and claims that from our insight into aggression, a sense of political limits and kind of talisman against political enthusiasm must follow. But at the same time, Trilling is not a a simple case and is never making those arguments without considerable ambivalence. And so, you know, psychoanalysis, which he celebrates and which I love, is as useful for diagnosing the limits of Cold War liberalism as for being its its foundation. What is the kind of Freudian case for Cold War liberalism? What did Freud do for some of these thinkers that makes him kind of the counterpart in some ways, as we've been describing it, to the pessimistic Augustinian original sin types? Well, so Trilling, who, when he was a socialist back in the day, had written a, a bitterly critical review of civilization and its discontents on its English translation, ultimately made that text his touchstone. And of course, you know, I used to teach at Columbia where in Trilling's tradition, we taught civilization and its discontents to every undergraduate. And that was a good thing. But it was the way that Trilling interpreted Freud, first of all, by retaining aggression when so many in the psychoanalytic community of the time and since rejected Freud's own pessimistic later turn, but then even intensifying a commitment that's in Freud, but that Trilling appropriates in a very simple-minded way that the reality of aggression means that social change will not change the beasts that we really are. And, you know, it's really neo-Augustinian very straightforwardly in Freud's book, Totem and Taboo, like the primal crime of killing the father takes the place of eating the apple in the Garden of Eden as the mistake that was made that leaves us with this heavy legacy that we can't ever overcome. We might, you know, lighten the oppression that the superego places on the ego. But as Freud says in Civilization and its Discontents, ultimately, both our history and our biology force us to patrol our aggression like a garrison in a conquered city. It's one of my favorite lines. Me too. And I used it to inspire the chapter title of the garrison self in Trilling's case. It's, again, not something that follows naturally from psychoanalysis. There were and are many other interpretations of it. Trilling knew this by the end of his life because 
he saw the marriage of Marx and Freud and the Freudian left explode in the 1960s, which caused him no little consternation, although he took them seriously and he took detailed notes on you know, a once famous book in my field by Paul Robinson called The Freudian Left, which kind of celebrated the possibilities that psychoanalysis offers to an emancipatory left, and I think still does. But as you've alluded to throughout the conversation, what's so interesting about Trilling's engagement with Freud is that in some ways, his whole career is a form of mourning for, and really, in, you know, sort of in the Augustinian vein, repenting for his youthful radicalism, which he is both intent to disavow, but unwilling to give up altogether. You know, in the sense that there's something always tragic about the bad news that he's bringing, (laughs) and that he longs in a way, sometimes explicitly, but mostly kind of implicitly, for what is sort of lost as a result of the historical moment that he's in. I think that's one of the strongest arguments you make, including with your reading of his novel. I mean, it's almost as if actually for Trilling, what's at the root of things is not Eve's choice in the Garden of Eden, nor the primal crime of the band of brothers back in the mists of time, but his view that he made mistaken political commitments, even though he was never a member of the Communist Party, his renunciation of them was a kind of painful thing And he's very clear when he studies the process of renunciation in any of the literary texts that he reads or indeed the novel he writes that renunciation preserves its object in a certain way because if you're in a mourning process, you abandon and pine for what you've given up. And this makes Trilling the most troubled advocate of Cold War liberalism because he's in a sense, um, making a case always. He's on the verge of making a case for a way of moving on, maybe, you know, in psychoanalytic terms, mourning, but also a kind of rehabilitation of a lost love object and the possibility of, you know, enjoying it in history and politics that he's officially renouncing for safety's sake and out of a zeal to repent. Right, right. I mean, you point out in your reading of uh, Middle of the Journey that Trilling sort of saw the kind of comfort of what a figure like Whitaker Chambers did by turning all the way to the reactionary right, because there's there's a way of being less ambivalently related to your kind of leftist past if you do that. And in, in fact, some of the affects and sort of modes of thought can, as critics of Chambers would say at the time and later, you know, he's kind of just a Bolshevik of the right now. And Trilling sort of says, though he understands why Chambers and the Chambers character in his book does that, that actually the harder thing is to stay in the middle, to stay in this place of ambivalent mourning and longing melancholia, which is his sort of definition of the liberal disposition, which is just simply not (laughs) hopeful. You know, it can't be the standpoint from which to imagine something glorious for the future, because it's just a depressive position. That's beautifully put, you know, the chamber's surrogate in the novel is attractive, more attractive than the kind of unreformed progressives, you know, the liberals who are open to socialism and progress. And that's because chambers has immunized himself against their mistakes while retaining their enthusiasm. It's just a kind of mirror image of what anti-communists have to give up. But 
then of course the best choices are reserved for the kind of centrist who doesn't go right, doesn't remain left, and is at the end in a, in a kind of situation of equipoise. It's just that when you read carefully, it seems like the character who's allegedly you know come out smelling like a rose is distraught by the trauma he's inflicted on himself as a garrison self. And I, I thought it was interesting you pointed to how Diana, his life partner, wrote after his death, I think, that the qualities in Trilling that everyone so prized and sort of like canonized him for exemplifying, you know, this kind of quietism and this equanimity and calm and ambivalence, they were not qualities that he admired in other people. (laughs) And hated in himself. So he's much like his main character as kind of self-hating centrist. And that that's matters to the podcast because, you know, Cold War liberals are conservative liberals who are not fully conservative. But Trilling is kind of indicting the pathologies of someone who has changed liberalism so much allegedly to, you know, avoid the worst, but inflicts the worst on himself and demobilizes change and forestalls emancipation for others. Right. You write, Trilling called for such an extraordinary self-immunization from hope that anti-utopianism could become its own form of tragedy, which is a wonderful sentence and I think exactly right. One of the things that made this book so so interesting and that seemed like, like a major impetus behind it is the fact that in your account, Cold War liberalism is still with us. Right. It has persisted. You just mentioned Leon Wieseltier into the 90s being a trillion disciple and kind of representative Cold War liberal after the Cold War, maybe. How would you describe its persistence? Why does it still matter? Who are some of the figures you might associate with it or just the kind of patterns of thought? So as I narrate, I mean, Cold War liberalism was challenged and named in the 1960s when liberals were trying to expand the New Deal in the form of the Great Society, but wandered into the Vietnam War and and really were challenged for that reason by the new left. And yet, since then, liberalism has stabilized both in domestic and foreign policy in the spirit of Cold War liberalism, frequently crossing over into neoliberalism and neoconservative policy, which we associate with knowing your enemy on the right, but actually had a, a massive influence on at least the liberalism of the of the Democratic Party. And then, as you said, reasserted after the Cold War when there could have been a reckoning with what the Cold War did to liberalism, but instead in a kind of haze of victory, it was assumed that this form of liberalism, which was officially not conservative, but had downloaded a lot of conservative memes and tropes, was ratified. And you can see that in foreign policy and the succession of enemies that were you know, sought and found. I think in domestic policy, you see it in the practical triumph of neoliberalism and neoconservatism under the auspices of democratic presidents, not only Republican ones. So that leads to, I think, Donald Trump in the present. And I, you know, we might just disagree here, but my take would be that resistance liberalism is Cold War liberalism. It's most concerned about the alleged imminent collapse of the regime, it's most concerned about the continuity of, of liberal governance, quote unquote, our democracy and the new favored formulation, and above all, in pursuing the alleged threats as if lifting those would save us the trouble of diagnosing how 
the form of liberalism we've adopted led here to and reimagining liberalism in part by going back to what it meant before the Cold War. So that's the case I'm mounting with this book, which is a very presentist case. You know, I agree with a lot of that, uh, especially the way Cold War liberalism kind of deformed the Democratic Party and paved the way maybe for the Clintonite triangulation neoliberal version of the party that most of us have lived with for quite some time now. And I think especially after 9-11, the kind of reemergence or attempt to reforge Cold War liberalism for this new challenge, it wasn't subtle. Peter Beinart, Paul Berman, the list goes on. Yeah, I mean, books that kind of invoke the vital center. And of course, there was the whole mania for Reinhold Niebuhr in the years after. Recall what James Comey's Twitter handle was, his secret Twitter handle. Oh, yeah. What was that? It was Reinhold Niebuhr. But, you know, I kind of wonder if bringing it all the way up to the present isn't quite right, because I think especially with my understanding of kind of resistance liberals, I think we've seen it hasn't been a fear of democracy, right? I mean, one of the big pushes has been for defending the right to vote against Republican attacks, expanding it. And even in our forum policy, Biden and Lula are calling for new worker protections at the UN. Under the Cold War, would Lula have won that election? Or would we have meddled to make sure the right winger won? So I kind of feel like maybe the categories of like liberal, illiberal, or liberal versus authoritarian or totalitarian, I see it much more on the axis of kind of democracy right now. And maybe that's a smokescreen. But I think even the kind of tentative breaks with neoliberalism economics we see under Biden too. I wouldn't want to defend Biden to the hilt here, but I do wonder if something's changing, even among the resistance libs, for all the threading about Trump's illegality and the legal arguments against him. That hasn't been all of it. It's, it's also been tied to a real defense of democracy, I feel like. And I wonder how many Cold War liberals would have been this enthusiastic about democracy. Well, it, a lot depends on what you think is actually being defended, because I take your points and I don't want to trivialize the kind of creative moves, especially of activists and even the Democratic Party in recent years, notwithstanding the fact, as we talked about on the prior podcast, the the resistance coalition includes the never Trumpers as central figures. But I would argue that what has been mainly talked about as a, you know, death of democracy syndrome, what it's actually been meant is a death of liberalism syndrome. And the inclusionary politics you reference, especially when it comes to democratic participation, I would argue has been subordinated to concern with a liberal regime form and liberal processes that Trump flouted. And so I take your point entirely. And again, I'm exaggerating for effect because I just think that my version of a left response to the kind of resistance era it, it is, is definitely not hegemonic. And I just wanted to reassert it at the end because I think it, it not only survives January 6th, which provided so much graphic evidence of the actual threats to liberalism and democracy alike, but it's irrelevant because if you don't take the, the measure of what it will be required to save democracy, including by renovating the very liberalism that you know, we've been talking about, then I think we'll have failed to save it. I think where Matt and I tend to end up when we are agreeing about these phenomena is that the best responses to the Trump era threats are those that acknowledge 
the threat and then tie them to an emancipatory agenda. So like people like Bernie and AOC and other people in the squad, I think have done an incredibly good job of doing that pretty consistently, where there may be allies in the sort of resistance coalition who would want to impose a kind of timid minimalism, preserving the the bare rudiments of liberal process as the highest end of this kind of project. They have been really resistant to allowing that to be the horizon of possibility in these years. But I also think, and I have disagreed sometimes with people on the left who think that it's a mistake to even kind of engage with this kind of language of crisis and threat because it redounds to the benefit of the sort of centrist coalition that you're talking about. Because I think actually, to the extent that they have incorporated those kinds of concerns into a broader left-wing emancipatory message that has allowed them to stay relevant and 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 to allow their critiques of liberalism as such or sort of cold war liberalism as we inherit it to resonate with this resistance audience who otherwise wouldn't even listen you know so just as a practical matter that's always been my position is that like in some ways it's conceding your point that there was this strong emphasis on the dangers are too big and too severe to think big but that this, that the move of our most talented politicians on the left was to acknowledge those dangers and say, specifically because they're so large, we cannot settle for mere juridical liberalism. I'm with you. I mean, that sounds like a promising way of, of getting results. But then the question is, did they? And we'd have to get into a debate about build back better and the Ukraine war, and true. which provided a reset for Cold War liberalism kind of almost magically and overnight. Extraordinarily so, yes. And we'll have to get into what's going to happen in the 2024 campaign, which yeah. strikes me as a redo of the last one with Biden once again, putting the accent on the defense of democracy as it is, rather than a visionary liberal alternative. And so, you know, we're, we're placing our bets now and none of these positions, you know, as the Cold War liberals teach us, can be asserted with immunity from the experience we've had, but they also need to kind of ready themselves for a lot of different possible outcomes. I mean, it, it is true that, especially during the 2020 primaries, the specter of who can beat Trump really did constrain, I think, the vision of the party and, and its voters. It was the main argument against Bernie. Yeah, electability. So there is a constraint and kind of pessimism there. I wrote a piece for Dissent on the January 6th report, which we've talked about on the podcast. But to me, the answer is, as Sam was intimating, so you want to talk about democracy and defending democracy? Let's talk about what democracy really works. You know, not just at the ballot, but in your workplace and otherwise. Well, can I say, because we sort of foreshadowed it so much, we have to sort of talk about how mine and Matt's perspective of incorporating sort of original sin and sort of the Freudian death drive and, and kind of repetition compulsions into a specifically leftist idiom works. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that I don't see the resistance era liberal project as particularly attuned to a kind of tragic sensibility about you know, how things go awry and how we undermine ourselves, even when we think we are defending ourselves most practically. You know, Freud's insight that like, really, we, we don't really suffer from our symptoms, we suffer from our bad solutions to our symptoms. I mean, I think that way of thinking about 
the problems in American politics, you know, leads me to this somewhat Trilling-esque disposition of, you know, not exactly Promethean liberalism, but something that accounts for sort of human fallibility, but in a way that sort of foregrounds kindness and empathy and something which I just, I guess, to get back to the point, the original part of the question is that, that I don't actually see that much in, in today's liberalism. I, today's liberalism doesn't seem to be sort of suffused by over-awareness of its limits. There's a lot of wisdom there. I mean, I think my rejoinder would have to be that we can access some of the earlier Promethean romantic sources of liberalism without abandoning some of those insights, in part to guard us against the reading of Augustine and Freud that led the Cold War liberals and their heirs in the resistance to a strange kind of quietism, not properly balancing ambition with fallibility. And that's our task. And I'm, I'm on those terms, I'm very happy to join the Know Your Enemy Club. The depressive left? Absolutely. But, the, you know, Trilling to me is not a model because he didn't achieve that balance. Instead, he relegated his hopes to something for which he entered a kind of permanent state of mourning, much like Adorno in Marxism. And these have proven deadly to emancipation, which has to be somewhere in the picture if the project is to remain leftist. That's a very well put, Sam Moyne. And I, I was thinking as you were talking that there's a great essay by Reinhold Niebuhr about Augustine, where he cautions the modern readers of Augustine of falling prey to, as he put it, I love this phrase, a too consistent realism. <laughs> and of course, the last word of the nature and destiny of man is hope. And as I often say on the podcast, you know, hope is not the same as optimism. So maybe uh, what you were describing and this kind of balance between the know your enemy existential sense of our, our weakness and fallibility. Fragility. Yeah, fragility with the more ambitious parts of earlier liberalism, the grand hopes of the left. You know, maybe, maybe hope is what we need. It's, it's not a surety of what will happen, but we're not abandoning our dreams either. Yeah. I, I have to say, I, I feel increasingly like my leftism always incorporates within itself a sort of mourning for lost dreams, lost hopes. I think actually that's just essential to what the left is. I mean, there's that great book, uh, Left Wing Melancholia by um, Enzo Traverso. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's an extraordinary book because it's pointing to the fact that in some ways what the left always does is sort of lose, mourn our losses, and find a way to transmute that mourning into renewed hope in Matt's terms. And I think if we don't do that, we can be prey to the mistakes that these thinkers in your book perhaps overly learned from. You know, there still are people who haven't learned the lessons of Stalinism, you know? I think that's true. But at, at, in the present juncture, I, I would end with the thought that utopianism is not our main problem right now. <laughs> oh, no. Correct. If it were the main problem, I think we'd be in a, a very different and much improved situation. We have to agree with that. Yes. That note of agreement might be a, a good one to close out on. Can't believe we're giving you the last word, Sam on our podcast. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. This was so fun. Catch you next time, listeners. Bye-bye.